On today's Psychology Hour, we'll discuss recognizing symptoms of autism spectrum disorders from the perspective of a person in adolescence or early or middle adulthood who doesn't yet have a diagnosis. And I'm thrilled to have with me Dr. Marsha Eckert, who, in addition to being a licensed psychologist in Connecticut since 1985, was appointed by the state's legislature to serve on their Autism Spectrum Disorder Advisory Council. And Dr. Eckert is also on the clinical advisory group of the Asperger's Autism Network and is author of several recent articles on Asperger's syndrome in the Journal of Health Service Psychology. Dr. Eckert, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. So, Marsha, before we jump into what I'm sure will be a really interesting and important conversation, I'd like to start by clarifying that our conversation today is not meant as a tool for self-diagnosis and is not diagnostic in any ways and is instead intended for more of a general information and discussion purposes. And one of the questions I will ask later on as we continue our discussion is about what a proper and and thorough diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder would involve, what that might look like. So with that being said, Marsha, I want to just kick us off here and start with a, a basic question. And that's what is an autism spectrum disorder? When, when I'm using that phrase, how, how would you best describe that? Well, I describe it as a way of functioning that's present from childhood. Kids and grown-up kids, therefore, have problems with social relationships and communication. They don't see the point of view of others often. They miss social cues that aren't specifically spoken and actually 70 to 90 percent of social or emotional communication isn't spoken. It's things like gestures or facial expression or tone of voice or inflection. So they're missing communication and therefore they're not necessarily responding appropriately, understanding social rules or understanding what's expected of them to do. There's a second diagnostic criteria is having some kind of repetitive or restricted behavior, which might be really having an intense interest in something or a preference for routines, having things be on a schedule or expectable. And a third criteria that's very frequent is having sensory sensitivity, which means very sensitive, for example, to sound or to um, something that's visually very stimulating, like walking into a mall or touch or to smell or to texture. That's a really helpful description. Thank you. I'm remembering from an earlier conversation that we had, you'd shared that a statistic from the CDC, about 1.7% of the population shares these symptoms. And when you, when you shared that stat with me from the CDC, it really resonated and kind of led me to wonder, why might some adolescents and, and early and, and middle adults who hold some of the symptoms you're describing of an autism spectrum disorder not already be di- diagnosed? And, and are there particular symptoms that commonly go unrecognized? That's a good question. And I'd like to just say for our listeners, 1.7% might not sound like a lot. Uh, And this study is with kids, but 1.7 is one in 59. And the kids grow up 
so researchers say there's actually a whole lost generation of adults who were never identified as having these issues. So in answer to your question, what might not be recognized, when someone misses cues, it might seem to other people that they simply don't care or they're not interested. Maybe they would seem rude and they would seem like they didn't fit in, like they weren't uh, smoothly kind of knowing what was expected of them. And they might miss what's said. For example, if someone makes a face that means stop it, they wouldn't necessarily pick up on that. And then the parent or a partner or peer might say, well, you know, he certainly doesn't pay attention to what I say, not realizing that he didn't actually say it. People who are on the spectrum are very literal thinkers. So much of what actually does get said doesn't make sense. So something like be respectful. How often does someone say that? Well, what exactly does that mean? And if you're a literal thinker, it actually doesn't mean a lot, even though the person might care very much about doing the right thing. A person would be often teased and bullied because they're quirky and they don't fit in and they don't quite get it. So it's kind of like having a target on your back that says, you know, tease me. Often people are bad at small talk and they're very typically very honest, which is a good trait, except sometimes it's socially wrong to say what's honest. But I'd like to make one other comment on this, and that is that people who are on the spectrum of have Asperger's can be incredibly successful or incredi seem incredibly smart. And I'll give you one example. There was someone who has revealed he has Asperger's, who um, had a really intense interest from the time he was a little kid on in ghosts and in police work. And it's Dan Aykroyd who used that to write Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, <laughs> one of my favorites. So, you know, people think of autism as low functioning and that's simply not the case. I heard you use that phrase earlier, be respectful. And I, I, I almost immediately kind of started ticking through all of these sort of phrasings that are, are common, that, that are very sort of loaded from a social perspective that, that carry with them sort of these implicit, at times, hard to, to, to understand social messages if you are approaching it from the way you describe it in that very literal sense. And that kind of leads me then into this very, I think, Hollywoodized, I'll use that phrase, notion of what autism spectrum disorders look like. I know you've used the, the character from Big Bang Theory, that the popular television show. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of what, what images we might see from the media and in society in general about what this, what autism spectrum disorders look like. Well, I think people think either of very low functioning people you know, the, the kid who's nonverbal, or they think somebody like Sheldon from Big Bang or that character in Rain Man who, you know, could do sort of miraculous numbers, but they don't accept someone who seems quirky, but not that different and maybe very smart and, you know, and very capable of, um, you know, of, of being successful, like Dan Aykroyd, for example, they 
they certainly wouldn't ex expect that. The idea is that somehow this person would really stick out in some way. And that's just not true. So there's definitely this image that we that society portrays of what an autism spectrum disorder looks like. And I'm, I'm curious if we pull ourselves out of that image for a moment and, and talk a little bit about what are some of the benefits of uh, recognizing the symptoms of an autism spectrum disorder that you've described? Why, why might that be a helpful process for a person with autism spectrum disorder uh, who who's currently doesn't have that diagnosis to, to recognize those symptoms? Well, I think first and foremost, people who are on the spectrum for reasons that we've just been talking about are often misunderstood so that they may be seen as not caring or they may be seen as not wanting friends or they may be seen as unengaged, but they're not. They very much often want to have friends and they're often very caring but they're not picking up on the cues of how and when to show it. And people who are on the spectrum and not diagnosed often don't understand themselves. Just because somebody looks like they're doing well doesn't tell you what's going on inside. And inside there can be a tremendous amount of anxiety and a tremendous amount of depression and a sense that somehow they don't fit in, they aren't like other people, but they don't get why. And they're lonely and confused and blaming themselves. And so having some way of making sense of that people who are adults sometimes say, ah, you know, my whole life makes sense now. Also people who are on the spectrum, once they do have a diagnosis, can ask for accommodations. So if you're very noise sensitive, for example, and you're working in a noisy setting, you're able to say, I, you know, I have a disability that makes me very noise sensitive and they might get a different workspace. Or they might know to tell a friend or a partner, look, I need you to tell me what it is you want because so often people expect you to know. If you, if you know me, then you know, you should know what I want. And that's just not, a reasonable expectation and so the person might be misinterpreted as not caring when in fact they are. A lot of these benefits that you're describing come from sort of this core idea of having the opportunity to understand your own experience better and to also receive some structural supports in, in a couple of different uh, environments and at your answer to this question made me think about what we talked about near the beginning of our conversation, which is what a proper diagnosis procedure for an autism spectrum disorder would look like. Could you talk a little bit about what that process involves? And then maybe how would a, how would a person go about finding such a person who could help with that? Another good question. I, you know, people who go out of this and Google Asperger's or autism spectrum disorder are probably going to find online tests they can take. And that kind might be interesting because they can see kind of criteria and does that sound like me or not. But to, to really get a diagnosis, you have to see a professional. 
And you have to see a professional who's familiar with high functioning um, autism disorder. So that's usually a psychologist, a mental health professional, um, a doctor. And there are sites such as Find a Psychologist that is a place to find people online. And they should always ask, are you familiar with Asperger's? Are you familiar with you know, people who are very high functioning on the spectrum? Because many of us who trained quite a while ago might not be as familiar as you would think. So there are a number of good resources. And I, and I heard that findapsychologist.org that you mentioned. And that, for our listeners, that would be the National Register's website. That's a database of several of thousands of um, really qualified health service psychologists who are, are scattered all around the country. And so that's one uh, resource to meet with a professional who can help answer some of these questions in, a, in the way that we've been talking about it on today's episode. So before we wrap up here today, Marsha, I, I want to just check in about other resources that, that you are aware of that you think might be good for, for sort of general information purposes. Are there places that you'd suggest listeners turn to? Well, you know, I think there's good information and bad information online. And so I think that as with anything else, people have to be kind of mindful of their sources and look to sources that are reputable. So if you go to, if you're looking for um, a, a medical or professional site, I would definitely look for one that is associated with a known center like uh, the Mayo Clinic or WebMD or, or one of those. There's um, often universities that have autism clinics that might know of professionals in the area. There are sites such as Asperger's 101 that might have resources. And so, you know, I think people just need to be aware that there's information and misinformation. And, and one thing I'd like to bring up just because it's so much in the news is the whole business of the vaccines, because one of the things that's on the misinformation sites is that vaccines cause autism. And I just like to say, as yet another person saying it, that no, they don't. The person who did the original study took it back and said that he was wrong. There's been many studies since then, including one pretty recently that looked at people who were kids who were vaccinated and kids who weren't, and they developed autism at the same rate. So I just, you know, want to be clear that if you're reading a site and it has information that seems extreme or seems, you know, I you know, check it out with a site that has some science or medical legitimacy, I guess is the way I'd put it. Yeah, I think that's a really a, a good thought that you're sharing there just about, you know, there's information online, both good information and misinformation, as, as you've described with the scientific consensus behind vaccines is that there's not a link uh, to, to an autism spectrum disorder there. While we're mentioning online, I'd, I'd just like to say that there's also resources online for people who are on the spectrum and for their families. There are Facebook groups, and some of them are 
closed groups so that people on the spectrum, I would imagine anonymously, could get support, ask questions, see how other, what other people are discussing, or family members could join a closed family group so they'd all be protected from trolling. There are, unfortunately, groups out there that are just, you know, negative, but I think people can tell the difference between constructive support and emotional support for families or for people and someone who's, you know, again, who is not a legitimate source of help or information. That's a really a, a good thought that you're sharing there. Well, Marsha, I, I want to just thank you so much for taking time to, to speak with me today. I'm just so appreciative of your, your insight on this episode of the Psychology Hour. I'm Daniel Elkert, and please join us next time. This has been brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists.